0: See, my problem is that I love getting into people's minds, mm-hmm. and I sort of would really like to believe that it's possible to do it, um, which sort of perforce makes me super anti-cynical, which is not necessarily the kind of position that is. It's not a. It's not a position that's in vogue. No, no, no. <laughs> at the moment, mm-hmm. um, and I don't even know whether I always believe it myself. So I always, right. you know, I don't know if if what I'm saying it has. If anything that I, have, that I have said or have written about, um, or will write about, has any actual real meaning, whether it's true, <laughs> <laughs> but I still want to believe that it's true.
1: <laughs> Welcome to the Slavic Connection. Uh, I'm your host today, Tom Rehnquist, and we will be joined by a PhD student in the History Department, John Glubb. John is a native of Los Angeles, and he joined us from UCAL Berkeley. Um, and he's been studying the development of the State Department and the United States Diplomatic Service. He is extremely well-read on everything, so I'm sure our conversation will run in many directions, um, but mostly situated sort of around the European amateur diplomacy, becoming more professional, and how that interacted with American services doing the same, and so a little bit on dollar diplomacy. And uh, I think you guys are going to really dig it, so Enjoy. Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Welcome to the Slavic Connection. Uh, I'm your host, Tom Rehnquist, and today I'm joined by a first year, first year PhD student? Yeah, that's right. First year PhD student, John Gleb. John, welcome to the show.
0: Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm happy to accept your very gracious invitation to appear on your new podcast. I
1: think I was pretty gracious. I've oh yes, always, always. As gracious be. as I can be. Uh, so me and John actually have a class uh, together this semester on international history. Um, and judging by his input on class, this should be a very rich conversation. Well, and I thank mean you that very genuinely. Much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, why don't you tell me a little bit about your educational background and what you'll be focusing on the next five, six years of study?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, so, I uh, came out of an undergraduate history program at the University of California, Berkeley. Um, I was not certain at all what kind of... I was really barely certain that I was going to be interested in history when I entered Mm -hmm. the program. Um, And I spent a long time shopping around for courses that interested me. And, I mean, you probably know what this is like. Uh, You take an undergraduate course. Some parts of the course Mm -hmm. are interesting, other parts are not. Um, The very first course that I took, in which every single aspect of the course was absolutely fascinating to me it was a course on uh, European diplomatic history uh, to 1914. So huh. at, I took that course. And at that point, it is I, 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 a light went on. Mm-hmm. This is what I want to study. I want to study diplomatic history. Um, and as an undergraduate, I was sort of primarily interested in the origins of the First World War in European politics. Um, But I stumbled onto a larger idea, a larger interest in a thematic interest in the extent to which diplomacy and international relations became bureaucratized and professionalized. Um, sort of at the end of the 19th century into the beginning to the middle of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of entering sideways from the First World War, which right. is on the cusp of the professional diplomatic era. Um, I came here to UT, which has a, a fantastic program in the history of international relations, as well as um, lots of resources to do with government and policymaking. And... Um, and that, in a very broad sense, is what I hope to do here. I hope to study the professional aspects of diplomacy um, from a sort of structural or professional bureaucratic perspective. Very
1: cool. And so you talk about how it's become this sort of bureaucratic machine. Yes. What did diplomacy look like in, before it entered the stage? Was it more um, aristocratic? Was it sort of just rich landowners could kind of decide how the country was going to progress? Um.
0: Um. Well, I think I can best answer that, and I should say first of all that my answers are going to be high, highly qualified in every case. I and love
1: qualified I'm, answers.
0: This is the very beginning of my program, but I can supply you with something that um, the famous historian Jim Sheehan um, once said in a lecture I heard him deliver. <clears throat> excuse me on the um, on the origins of the First World War, mm-hmm. and he described international relations in Europe in, even in 1914 as essentially handled by a group of about 60 people who all knew each other and grew up with each other mm-hmm. um, I, I have more anecdotes like this um, the ambassador to Britain uh, from France in 1914 uh, was Paul Campbell mm-hmm. the ambassador from France to Germany in 1914 was his brother Jules. <laughs> <laughs> And I mean they, these these people all knew each other, they had lunch with each other. they were from the same the same sort of elite sure. aristocratic cultural background um, and even during this era though, a kind of bureaucratic machinery, as you put it, was emerging around these people um, and it was beginning to sometimes deliberately and sometimes not, um, draw power from this kind of older aristocratic or elite mode of politics, uh, uh, what has sometimes been called amateur diplomacy. (laughs) Um, And... It didn't happen in a neat way. It mm-hmm. was quite messy. I mean, there were conflicts between these people, uh, sure. obviously, professional jealousies, but also differences in worldview. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's that kind of dynamic, which I'm really interested in exploring, uh, the extent to which this is a messy process, and right. the extent to which the messiness of the transition, the movement of power from the amateurs to the professionals, mm-hmm. um, and, the contest- and the contestation of that. Also spilled over into the making of international relations.
1: So you would say there's sort of uh, there's a higher market for idiosyncrasy in diplomacy when you had just sort of these, you know, the smattering of aristocrats deciding how the world should act. No, that's and that's opened the market.
0: That's a very good way of putting it, actually. Um, I read recently um, the biography of um, yes, a biography about. Um, a kind of transitional American diplomat who very much thought of himself as belonging to this this European or transatlantic elite mm-hmm. aristocratic class, even though he was from the United States mm-hmm. um, and he like many of his fellows, he grew up and went to school in Europe. he went to school in England and he made friends with a lot of English aristocrats and he describes all of their idiosyncrasies in very funny ways he He um, wrote in letters to to his family back home about a fellow he was friends with who was a a lord, a a country squire somewhere, Mm. um, who would... um, He had a collection of gnomes, um, sculptures of (laughs) gnomes on his estate positioned in artistically formed grottos um, with whom he would go out and converse. And, I mean, these are... This, this man was a part of the gentry that was running England, <laughs> right. um, and there he, there he is, you know, talking with his pretend gnomes on, on, on the grounds of his estate. Did
1: he assign the gnomes diplomatic positions? Like, here's the sultan, here is uh... <laughs> it's
0: a— That's amazing to, to imagine that. I, I don't think he was okay, a diplomat. gotcha. But that gives you an image of the kind of the idiosyncrasy
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, built into—baked into amateur okay. diplomacy and amateur government.
1: And did so. A bulky research is looking at this development in America, correct?
0: Yes, so, here in here at UT, I will be looking at the United States.
1: Okay, so how would you compare the I guess pre-modern diplomatic system of America? Did they go through the same sort of bureaucratization? Um, did it happen at the same time, mm-hmm. um, or did we have our own little special America spin on things?
0: Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, It's a very good question in part because I've been surprised by the answers I've discovered so far. Um, I came here expecting to see the process play out in somewhat similar ways to the way it played out in Europe. My experience as an undergraduate, again, was actually pretty specifically focused on Britain Mm -hmm. and the way that the process functioned in Britain. Um, And the development of a self-consciously professional service in Britain really is a story about... Um, a kind of ideology of state power and the importance of professional management of that power, professional Hmm. planning. Um, It's almost kind of Clausewitzian in a way, in the sense that uh, the ideal was to have this genius sitting at the top of the policymaking hierarchy, but a genius insofar as this person would be capable of synthesizing information handed to the genius by these technical experts Mm -hmm. who would become specialized in one particular aspect of diplomacy, economics, uh, the projection of military power, perhaps in a particular country. Um, So it's very much a kind of power politics, a very um, Bismarckian or Machiavellian way of looking at the world. Um, In the United States, by contrast, what I've discovered is that most of the professionalization impulse, especially early on, um, emerged from the interest of, especially private business owners, um, which spilled over into Congress mm-hmm. um, and spilled over to a certain extent into the State Department um, in promoting American economic interests overseas. Um, the, this is very much the sort of William Appleman Williams story of American, the ideology of American economic expansion. Okay. Um, And so unlike in Europe, where a lot of the professionalization was provoked by a sort of fear of neighboring powers, um, in the United States, it's provoked by concerns about the extent to which the U.S. can compete economically with European empires. And so the first branch of the foreign service in the U.S. that is professionalized is not the diplomatic service. It's not the kind of... What we today think of as the policymaking node in Washington, the State Department. It's actually the consular service. Huh. That is the part of the Foreign Service that specialized in providing businessmen with information about um, economic activities in other countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's an author who wrote a book um, that is very good in the 70s, but seems to be sort of largely overlooked. I've never seen it actually cited by anyone else. Um, uh, the historian's name is Richard Hume Working. Uh, The book is called The Master Architects on the uh, very early development before the First World War of the American Professional Foreign Service. And he's very good on the consular service and the attitudes of the consuls. He describes them as um, interested in kind of levering American businessmen through the open door Um, in reference to John Hay's famous open door notes of uh, 1899, 1900, I think um proclaiming an American kind of open market in China. Um and this was the this was the kind of central the primary impulse, the the causa causans of the professionalization wow. of the American Foreign Service, I think. And so
1: do you see that did uh, European powders sort of bifurcate? I'm sure they had bodies that had similar Goals trying to you know protect French business interests abroad. Did they have just separate smaller attachés that would be responsible for that? And the U.S. was unique that it was all sort of centralized, or was the U.S. sort of innovating by not divorcing the two at all?
0: Um, well, I think this is not something I've studied to any great extent, but my sense is that the European powers were undergoing perhaps analogous developments in the realm of commercial diplomacy. I don't think the United States was necessarily any more sophisticated, though. I mean, it is interesting. I I found a few documents which make reference to um, which show European officials sort of looking at each other's commercial practices and looking at American Mm -hmm. commercial practices, and actually concluding um, that the Americans were were doing a fairly sophisticated job in the realm of commercial. Um, using these professional commercial agents abroad, um, but they were, I mean the Americans did say the same thing about the Europeans, they were always concerned that European consular agents or um, the equivalents of consular agents, that the people doing economic, um, the promotion of economics abroad, um, were more sophisticated than the Americans, no. so it's not clear to me that there was any sort of difference in evolution, but there was definitely competition. Sure. Um, what what seems to have actually happened is rather that in the United States, as commercial competition with Europe became, as people began to sense that this was more and more important, um, this became bound up with a, a growing interest in creating something resembling a European power political sort of structure, something which could also project Either project American power in a more traditional military way, or um, that would act as a sort of guardian of the national interest. Sure. Um, because this is—I mean, this is how I think the diplomats sort of get sque- try to graft on to the the energy of the consular the consular reforms—is by saying that basically what you need to have above this level of commercial expansion is some group of people who are trained or are especially cultivated to think about the national interest and to make sure that this commercial expansion that is going on is always set in relation to American national interests. There's a kind of a distrust of pure business expansion, mm-hmm. pure commerce. That's, that's, you know, it's too international. This is what the diplomats say. We need real Americans, in effect. There's a lot of xenophobia in the diplomatic sure. service um, to make sure that it's, it's, it's harnessed to the national interest. Um, and that's when the American professionalization process begins to look more like the European one and that it begins to sound it, it, the conversation begins to be about power and national interest not just commerce wow.
1: that was a great answer and so uh, I'm contemporizing your work a little bit so I don't Hi. want to push too far if you wouldn't like to but um, do you see the roles of diplomats changing in a more globalized economic world? Obviously, we've studied quite a bit how globalization happened Not exactly how it's articulated today. It has happening in the late 19th century um, as much as it was in the 80s, 90s, however. Do you think diplomats are returning to this more, more business machine-minded role as we've sort of conducted diplomacy by markets in the last couple decades?
0: That is an interesting question. Um of course, the operative term in the era that I'm studying was dollar diplomacy, mm-hmm. um, which was a label that was famously applied to the uh, economic policy of the Taft administration. Um, I'm, ac- I'm in the process of developing a research project on dollar diplomacy and one of the people instrumental in in sort of shaping the dollar diplomat worldview at the beginning of the 20th century. So I might be able to provide you with a better answer after I know a bit, about, a bit sure. more about how that developed. What I will say is that um this is not quite as contemporary as your question is, mm-hmm. but I do think there is a point at which the function the perceived function of diplomacy changes um and it it is not necessarily in a commercial way um but this fascination with somehow pegging American. Um, informal commercial hegemony, um, which is what we're talking about, especially mm-hmm. by mid-century, to American national interests, this what you could call a kind of realist view, mm-hmm. begins to give way um, in the 70s um, and into the 80s um, to a view that is interested in the promotion of human rights um, a kind of ideological and moral dimension. Interesting. And it's not clear to me the extent to which that is that carries over to today, but I, I think it does sure. to a significant extent. And this is not my point of view by any means. I mean, lots of people have written about mm-hmm. Um, the sort of transformation of American foreign policy including one of the people I work with at Berkeley um, uh, Daniel Sargent who was my, one of my undergraduate mentors uh, wrote a book on American policy in the 70s called A Superpower Transformed about the emergence of an American human rights policy but the book I'm actually thinking of when I'm talking about this is um, uh, Sarah Snyder's recent From Selma to Moscow mm-hmm. uh, which is very good at the end insofar as she talks about the institutionalization and bureaucratization of interest in human rights. It's not simply the old story of people like, you know, someone like Kissinger, the the consummate realist giving way to someone like Carter um, or to to Brzezinski, people who are perceived as having a more ideological interest uh, in human rights promotion. Um, It's also a story about these practices this mindset of human rights promotion becoming internalized and institutionalized inside the State Department, um, so oh, that that I think is an interesting change that occurs in the the diplomatic mind, so to speak, of the United States. Um, and that we, may still be operative today. Um, I'm not certain, though. Nor yeah. am I certain. Quite how to engage with your question about globalization and commercial diplomacy. Sure. Um, I'll, I'll report back to you. If
1: you got two years, uh, I think, of reading ahead of you, so yeah. I'm sure you have uh, plenty of ground to make up. And so, uh, where do you see this is an unfair question because we do have several years to go in your PhD. Where do you see the logical conclusion of your work being?
0: Um, the logical conclusion that of my work. That could be
1: temporal or ideological, or do you, do you have a date in mind that you're, you know, seeing the end of the development being or is this sort of a living breathing idea
0: sure um, there are probably there are lots of ways I think in which I could answer this question um, the most likely possibility professionally speaking that I can foresee is this is just a short term answer um, I would like to produce I think um, and it may change mm-hmm. but I think I would like to produce a dissertation write a book on this subject sure um And I think maybe logical endpoints may be the two I've made reference to already that is beginning and endpoints. The beginning, the originating point being the emergence of this national interest school on the back of the commercial professionalization movement at the beginning of the 20th century, the end point being Sarah Snyder's institutionalization of human rights policy. Um, And so that would be the the that would be the kind of temporal focus of the body of work I would hope to produce here. Um, As for the larger implications of such a work, if I do produce it. I haven't thought incredibly deeply about this, but um, Dr. Jeremy Surrey, who is one of the uh, one of the professors uh, who I'm working with in the history department here, mm-hmm. um, has pointed out the value to contemporary policymakers who are constantly engaging, uh, certainly now more than ever, in rethinking the bureaucratic structure of the of the State Department and rethinking the professional aspect of the practice of American diplomacy. If you're going to do that, um, if you're going to uh, think about making an American diplomacy into State Department 2.0, it's important uh, to understand the emergence of the State Department 1.0, which is what I would, in effect, be doing. Now, the interesting thing about Wilson, at least this is the interpretation I've just been reading, that he is not, you know... Liberal internationalist language aside, um, he's the way he actually conducted policy in a, pr- in a practical sense mm-hmm. was not extraordinarily different extraordinarily right. different from the way in which the Taft administration pursued public uh, policy uh-huh. diplomacy. Right. Um, and he also, um, I mean, famously, Wilson was racist, um, and the international, the liberal internationalism of the of that era was not. A multiculturalist or cosmopolitan internationalism. It was cosmopolitan only in the sense of some sense of shared Western uh, traditions, if even that. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, uh, there's a lot of xenophobia baked into all of this. And anti-Semitism, too. All of the, like, suspicion of pure commerce and pure business, what, it, what that actually is, is a suspicion of Jews. Hmm.
1: It's yeah. a suspicion
0: of Jewish banking because bankers especially Jewish bankers, are perceived as being not wholly American. Um, my, the basis for my project is going to be the worldview of the Assistant Secretary of State in who's, 1909 to 1913. That was the period during which he served. He was a, one of these people who was involved in professionalizing and reforming the American diplomatic service, mm-hmm. not just the consular service. And he wrote all this This. I mean, it's garbage about <laughs> American domestic politics. Uh-huh. And a, a play, he wrote a play about American Oh, culture. you mentioned yeah, this, play, yes. Oh, oh
1: awful, God, yeah. Awful
0: play. And the play ends with this tirade launched by one of the central characters, it's a professional military officer, so he's one of the good guys. He's one of the true, the real Americans. Mm-hmm. And he's, dena- the, the, it's a long speech condemning money. Money knows no nation. The thesis of the speech is we need to have the real Americans at the top, managing finance because money is international. um, and It will subvert the national interest. And this is expressed through a very clumsy metaphor in the play through which a foreign power, pretty clearly Germany, colludes with uh, an American banker who is Jewish to subvert American dollar diplomacy in the Caribbean and launch a surprise attack on the Panama Canal. This is 1913, it's yeah. before the war. That's another possible, like interesting thing that could come out of this research is there were some American diplomats who wrote about the danger of Germany and the danger of German aggression and the importance of the American ba- the, the American balancing role in a European political system. Um, and these people, especially one guy, Louis Einstein, um, these people have been faded for a long time. I mean, George Kennan writes about them right. in, in glowing terms. These are the people who pioneered Ameri- modern American mm-hmm. diplomacy. They were the only ones who were awake. They could see that America had this in, had this role to play on the international political scene. Mm-hmm. I think that might just that might be completely garbage. Actually, yeah. what's really going on is that these people were sort of like super xenophobic and nationalist and anti-Semitic mm-hmm. and concerned about the impact and concerned about the fact that American foreign policy was all about. Um, was all about business. And so tried to invent this, this idea of the European balance of power and an American it's role a, in it mm-hmm. to sort of create a political structure that could manage the finance stuff, which they were so scared about. There were, like, I think different views on what was acceptable in the international arena in the United States and yeah. in Europe. The United States was historically anti-imperialist in the sense of being anti-direct like direct rule over foreign populations by European states, Mm -hmm. but the United States was totally okay with all sorts of other kinds of exploitation. I mean, what Snyder is definitely saying is that, you you know, in the State Department you get this moment where the rhetoric of human rights sort of starts to click with people and they think about the things they're doing as being interconnected Mm -hmm. and... This infrastructure for the creation of human rights, capital H, capital R, as a sort of big sweeping category uh-huh. develops. But there's there's like a split. There's a division within the um, within the the human rights promotion community. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you get the people who are like Elliot Abrams, who are the United States is this special country that is all about liberty. Go go us. We're going to go out and actively promote human rights. Mm-hmm. Possibly like up to and including by military means. Is that neoconservatism? Yeah, exactly. Yes So let's call it neoconservatism. That's right. And then there is I mean the Ilhan Omar school um, Which is also I think derived from a kind of concern with human rights Is that that's not okay? The United that's that's a kind of imperialism. It's a sort of third-worldist position Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, there was a really interesting talk on the anniversary, did any of you see this? There was a, a, a colloquium, the history department held it, on the, what is it, the 50th anniversary of the UN Declaration of Human Rights, it was last November or something, Surrey was the host. Uh, speakers were Lawrence, uh, Michael Stoff, who's in the history department, well they're all in the history department, Michael Stoff, and um, um, Lena del Castillo, uh, who is a specialist in Latin American history. and. Stoff and Lawrence gave relatively orthodox, sort of, what is human rights policy about from the U.S. perspective, especially Stoff. Del Castillo, on the other hand, gave a pretty vigorous third-worldist argument, and there was a discussion afterwards during which you could see these different perspectives clashing. So, yeah, human rights is not a unit—I think it is like— there's a division in the human rights community yeah. that, that happens after this so it's not just like everything's about human rights it's which kind of human rights
1: there's a point where like realism realizes that it has to like position itself as constructive or else it's going to just look like imperialist yeah and, boy. They, yeah, and then there's you know people are not I don't think they're upset by the actual idea of what is or I think not upset by the means of what is happening but the idea of it is so hypocritical that like they just can't co-sign it
0: I mean that's such a big question like how much of this like how much of neoconservatism is cynicism? Mm-hmm. Is just like realists, like realis- realism in cheap clothing, mm-hmm. consciously. And how much of it is actually? I mean, you can think totally different things about the world and yet behave in the same way. Right. Um, like I, you know. Maybe Elliot Abrams is, com- is, like, completely the opposite of Henry Kissinger, actually, and he actually believes all of these things. That's, that seems like a perfectly valid possibility, and you'd still get the same pattern of Elliot Abrams' mm-hmm. shady behavior from him believing in all of the stuff he says. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've,
1: I've tried to divorce myself as much as possible from, like, what people believe. Or, like, you know, Bill Clinton would talk about how he'd read Marcus Aurelius and Meditations. And that whole book is about, you know... Eliminating your sense of desire and want in life, so I just don't buy shit like that Like it's what you do, how you vote is what matters because you can Straw man yourself to be anything in the world, but what you steal man yourself to be could be very different
0: Yeah, see my problem is that I love getting into people's minds Mm -hmm. And I sort of would really like to believe that it's possible to do it um, Which sort of perforce makes me super anti-cynical which is not necessarily the kind of position that is. It's not a. It's not a position that's in vogue. No, no, <laughs> at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't even know whether I always believe it myself. So I right. always, you know, I don't know if if what I'm saying has if anything that I have that I have said or I've written about. Um, or will write about has any actual real meaning, whether it's true. <laughs> but I so want to believe that it's true.
1: Um, so that was a great interview. Well, I usually end these are come to the tail end. I'll ask my guest. Um, so what is the most recent thing you read? This could be related to your PhD or seen um, that is has influenced your work or you just really enjoyed. Uh, it could be related to what you're doing or not. Um, but something that you want to leave an audience with
0: yeah um, well I've mentioned um, I've mentioned Richard Hume working's book already yeah. and, and I've mentioned uh, Sarah Snyder's book as well um, a third book I could throw in is, and it's probably the book which has had the which sort of struck me the most and seemed most interesting to me um, is a book by Kristen Hoganson um, called uh, Fighting for American Manhood. Okay. Um, did which, you,
1: I believe you referenced this, and uh, did you reference this last night? Yeah, I, I did. I like,
0: did bring <laughs> in this. I, I, we discussed this last night, yes. in fact, in our in our course discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, the book is a very interesting. I mean, it's it's it was famously controversial sure. when it emerged because it it pioneered the cultural interpretation of diplomatic policy making, um, and this is something which I've become really interested in interested in lately, the the sort of cultural and intellectual historical aspects of foreign service professionalization in the United States. Um, Basically, Hoganson's argument in this book is that the outbreak of the Spanish-American War can be explained in terms of gender politics and gender anxiety in the United States um, in the 1890s. It's a fascinating thesis. And what's remarkable about the book is that it's not simply a ground-level history of uh, gender in the United States um, she shows the ideas from this this sort of this world of, of this politics of anxiety which is operating throughout American society mm-hmm. sort of shooting up the the architecture of power um, from debates in newspapers into debates in Congress and um, eventually straight to the desk of President William McKinley um, and through that process comes out of that process comes the declaration of war on Spain mm-hmm. after the main incident in 1898. Right. This is what Hoganson proposes. It's a really fascinating book.
1: Wow. Hey, so he doesn't just blame it all on William Randolph Hearst. And, no, uh, he
0: does okay. not just blame it all on William Randolph. That would
1: Hearst. be my she, succinct. She doesn't history. just blame it all on him. Uh, John. That was a great interview. Thank you very much. Uh, We'd love to have you back on, maybe
0: six months a year. See where you're at. <laughs> well, thank you so much again for having me on your show. It's all been great.
1: The views, opinions, and ideas expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Thank you for listening to The Slavic Connection. Please visit slavxradio.com for more information and to subscribe to our podcast and YouTube channel. As always, we invite listener feedback, so please send us your comments. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you.